0: I'll say thanks um, in the beginning for this invitation. Um, I've been listening to your podcast now and taking lots of different tips and tricks um, from people across different sectors. So I think it's a really great source of uh, inspiration.
1: Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi A14, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now, let's get started with this episode.
0: A bit about me. I'm uh, I'm Sarah. I work as the global communications manager at an organisation called Spark, and Spark is a international NGO um, focusing on uh, providing job creation uh, solutions for young people in fragile and conflict conflict affected states. So that's a lot to lot in in the Middle East, in North Africa, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and we um, we do that in a number of ways through providing higher education scholarships for young people, also um, providing entrepreneurship support so people can start their own companies, uh, and helping uh, existing companies to kind of grow all in the name of providing more jobs because we really feel that it's, um, yeah, people are less likely to fall into poverty or take dangerous migration routes uh, if they have a job. I think, uh, yeah, we all all want a job, whether you're a young woman or a refugee or... uh, Wherever you are, I think that's what all young people are looking for. So, yeah, I've been at Spark for around six years now. Um, And before that, I have a background in psychology. I studied psychology in London and have done various um, jobs with um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and uh, also within filmmaking organisations. Um, so I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I certainly didn't uh, study uh, communications or come into it from the traditional pathways, um, but I I love it. You know, it's it's my uh, yeah. It was really my calling. I think this this profession.
1: Hmm. That's really very interesting, Sarah. It's interesting to know. Uh, of course, we are going to be talking about uh, communication and storytelling today. Uh, but it's good to dive a little bit uh, deep into uh, your personality, uh, who you are, where you are coming from. Of course, this is this is storytelling in need safe now. <laughs> okay. All right. So tell me, where did you grow up uh, as a young adolescent?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a place called Cornwall in the UK. Um, and Cornwall is one of the most, Uh, rural places it's very beautiful Uh, lots of uh, fields and beaches Um, but as you can imagine uh, rural places are often very um, limiting for young people growing up so as soon as I possibly could I moved to the big city so I moved to London um, I think in 2013 to study um, and throughout my career have kind of moved around a bit also. So lived in the Netherlands um, for a number of years, also in, in Turkey and Lebanon and Israel and Palestine also. So I uh, have done yeah, yeah, various experiences um, working in the Middle East as well as
1: in Europe. So um, when you were a young adolescent, uh, what sort of thing would you say actually makes sense to you uh what did you spend your time on help us understand that
0: good question yeah i think um probably i speak for most communications professionals that um we're all inherently very sociable people so i spent a lot of time uh being very sociable, I'd say. Um, uh, working with, yeah, or not working with, but you know, friendships uh, were really important. But and also growing up uh, by the sea, uh, there was a lot of time for um, going to the beach, surfing. Cornwall is the the surfing capital of the UK, so that was a big um, passion of mine. Not, certainly not saying that I was any good at it, but uh, I think you get a sense of maybe who of I course
1: am. Of was, was you time there, so you were good on it. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I don't think so. I was a, I was a bit of a wannabe surfer girl, but um, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I uh, grew up with, with lots
1: of friends and family around. All mm-hmm. oh, right, that's cool. Uh, and, and that at that time, what were you seeing in front of you as a kind of something you were going to spend your time doing in when you grow up much something that were that you were looking towards in the future?
0: yeah, I think yeah, like I said, when you grow up in a a kind of smaller town or a smaller community, uh you always look outwards for inspiration, and I think that's exactly kind of what happened to me. I was always very purpose driven so I wanted to help people I wanted a career that was benefiting other people and not only about making a salary Um, and yeah I come yeah my family are like all medical professionals I was the kind of black sheep of the family that didn't go down the medical uh, route um, but I think that 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 vibe of, of wanting to you know, do something good for other people was always there. And so that's why uh, as soon as I could, I started kind of volunteering, working with older people, um, seeking opportunities that benefited you know the most vulnerable people in society. Um, and, yeah, that that's, yeah, kind of took me to, uh, to work in NGOs and different charities and, uh, and to the various places where I, I've lived. Mm-hmm.
1: It, 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 if you look back to your life now, is there anything that could have been um, pulling you or pushing you towards those things, towards this idea of trying to uh, help other people, try to do something for other people, uh, something that you can uh, hold back to maybe in your family or within your neighborhood or friends or how did this spark happen that you wanted to do something for other people?
0: Hmm. Um. To be honest, I can't really think of a, a key moment or a, or a yeah, that that want, made me want to do that. It's always been there. Um, and I guess, yeah, like I said, it comes from uh, being surrounded by family that want that and being surrounded by a community that's very cohesive and um, supportive. So I think um, growing up in that environment, uh, yeah, enabled me to, to uh, pursue this kind of a career.
1: Now, you, you choose to work with the NGO. Uh, Do you want to tell me how that actually started with you? Which was the first one you worked with? I want to understand the beginning stage in your working with the NGO now.
0: Yeah, sure. So I think um, my first uh, experiences were with volunteering. So uh, volunteering within schools, um, volunteering uh, in Sri Lanka. I went to Sri Lanka to volunteer for a few uh, months. Um, and really loved, you know, working directly with uh, people um, and having um, an impact, uh, you, being able to see the direct impact of your work, really. Um, and then my kind of first international job was with Amnesty International, where I worked in Israel with African asylum seekers from uh, Eritrea and Sudan. Um And then from there, yeah, from there it spiraled, really. Then I went to Human Rights Watch and then uh, have ended up at Spark, uh, which is the NGO that I work for now based in the Netherlands.
1: Is there anything that you learned when you went to Sri Lanka, you went to Israel and working with the Amnesty International and meeting different people there? Uh, What did you learn working with these people?
0: Yeah, I think um, the impact is the, the biggest uh, learning experience. I mean, yeah, I've said uh, before that I come from a very small uh, community. And so seeing, um, understanding the lives and the experiences that other people uh, have had and feeling very fortunate to have grown up in yeah, a beautiful, uh, safe environment. Um, this yeah, this then grew this feeling of uh, well, I have been very privileged and fortunate to uh, just be born really in a in a safe country and uh, feeling that yeah, I should use these privileges to um, support people that have not had the same opportunities that I've had so that's why I'm so proud to kind of work with spark because, like I said, we, yeah, everybody wants a job opportunity, no matter who you are. I think everyone on this uh, planet is really keen to, uh, to be independent and to grow their own businesses, maybe, or to have a stable income and work, um, and work and be financially, also financially independent. So it's a really, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a cause that I really believe in, let's say.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Now, you're working currently with Spark. Uh, Do you want to tell us exactly what that organization is and what it does? Then, of course, we are going to turn around to talk about uh, storytelling and communication and how all this ties in uh, into what you do. Help us with that.
0: Sure thing. Yeah, so Spark is um, an international NGO focused on job creation for young people um yeah we're mostly focused focused on uh, the Middle East uh, North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa and we support young people women refugees uh, IDPs the the kind of yeah people facing um, vulnerabilities where they're where they're living um, and we support them to uh, enter higher education to grow their own, startups to grow existing businesses to to scale them all in the name of uh, of job creation really because we believe that when people have uh, stable income a good a job a job opportunities um they're less likely to fall into poverty uh and um yeah less likely to fall into poverty and take dangerous migration journeys
1: all right. Thank you so much for that. I I appreciate that. Um now I want you to tell me a little bit about um about storytelling. Uh how you might be using storytelling in the work that you do today.
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um well yeah, stories, I think for any communication professional, stories are your bread and butter, really. Um, and for NGOs, uh, that often means stories that revolve around individuals or stories about communities that we're supporting. I mean, we don't have uh, goods or services to really sell, we don't have products. And so uh, for us, stories are the best way to communicate the impacts, the importance of the impact that we're having uh, in the world. Um, and we use yeah, the images and and written stories or video stories uh, of of our participants of our programs to aid our communications, our fund- fundraising, our advocacy objectives, um, and I think yeah, storytelling really helps to make all of those things more powerful when there's a human face. Um, but I think yeah, many many of the stories that NGOs have have used or have um worked with in the past have done some damage and some uh perpetuating of stereotypes um particularly when thinking about the developing world um and portraying people as as disempowered um so that's a lot what my work today focuses on as the kind of global communications manager at spark I feel it's really my duty to make sure that these stories are told are told ethically. Um, we're being nuanced. Um, that the the storytellers or the contributors themselves, you know, that the right type of consent is given um to help undo some of these these damaging stereotypical portrayals of particularly you know like i think we've uh, a lot in the western world anyway seen campaigns of uh poor african children with flies in their eyes um that yeah it really it really uh disempowering type of imagery and type of storytelling um, so organizations so of course uh, these days a lot there's a big conversation now and are taking a lot of care to kind of source and promote authentic imagery from people in developing countries um, and try and shift or yeah make this power imbalance of uh, of the n g o communications professional who's asking for the photo, and the person who's having their picture taken much more of an equal power dynamic um, but yeah, there are still yeah a lot of steps to be taken, but I think um maybe I can highlight a few of those uh those those steps,
1: oh sure, sure mm, yeah, you could highlight some of those steps that I think they will be important for us to. To better um uh, take this the story further um, but i was just uh thinking storytelling by ngo created stereotypes i find that to be interesting in your explanation why why is that do you think maybe this ngo um are making mistakes i use western ngo for example because you are a Westerner, you are in the uk so I believe that uh, when you when you are talking of NGO, you are mainly referring to Western NGO that are working in other um, country or uh, continents like uh, African in this case. Why do you think these NGO uh, create story or use storytelling uh, that creates stereotypes? Uh, is it that they are making mistakes? They don't know why they are what they are doing, or can you say anything about that?
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's a, I think it's um it's a combination of things. I think you you just you rightly mentioned there that um a lot of the big international NGOs, so like Save the Children or uh, World Health Programme or you know, big um Western donor funded uh, donor-funded, uh organizations I, I always use the acronym that the NGOs international NGOs are weird uh, and weird stands for Western educated uh, Western educated industrialized rich and democratic and I think that accounts for most of the the development or humanitarian organizations. But it also accounts for most of the people uh, that are working in those organisations. So, um, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a white English speaking British woman, uh, and I am telling stories about uh, young refugees in the Middle East or young entrepreneurs in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And what what does my ex- lived experience have to do with um, with the people that I'm I'm telling stories about? Um, and I think that's where a lot of unconscious bias comes in. Um, and yeah, I can talk a bit more about that. But I think there's a few other issues that um, that are also happening. And I think traditionally NGOs, particularly when fundraising, have relied on Uh, relied on on fear or relied on sadness of trying to trigger these types of emotions in in their audiences to promote um, fundraising so you saw that back in the 80s with huge um, uh, live aid concerts and uh, uh, that was to raise money I think for the Ethiopia famine but all of these, this was the kind of trigger or the start of um, of that type of communication. And I think um, over the years, people have recognised that this is is perpetuating negative stereotypes. But it but the resources within organisations, so that's like financial, but also you know manpower uh, and the with charities and NGOs simply lack uh, resources and so there's not that much will to change Um, so it's a very very slow process in terms of changing or yeah communications teams trying to persuade upper management to to change and you know pumping new financial resources into trying different methods when uh when what what NGOs often hear from audiences is is I I've been in focus groups you know when I hear things like oh I wouldn't give to that child in this photo because that child's holding a pencil uh they don't look you know needy enough or they don't look poor enough for me to give so I wouldn't give to this uh this ad let's say um yeah which is which is then the ngo then feels pressure from audiences to to not change that type of communication so they they still go for the for the the kind of fear or the empathy response um but it's yeah it's uh changing in this in this kind of digital age i think if you look at evolutionary psychology you see that yeah our brains uh, as human as as human beings, haven't really evolved since the time that we were hunter-gatherers, where you might only. The kind, yeah, the the most scary thing that might happen to you is that you see a, a predator, like a lion or a bear or something, and you would see that maybe I don't know once a week or something, and that would trigger your your fight or flight response. But but now in the age of uh, Homo Smartphoneicus, where we're all completely attached to our mobile phones, um, we're constantly bombarded with. Uh, with news stories that are often really negative. So constantly bombarded with, you know, updates about flooding, about wars, about economic crises, about refugees. And all of this, uh, this negative or scary um, input is really... Uh, damaging and we can't handle it in terms of yeah yeah we and uh, you see it a lot now in in charities and NGOs you hear about uh, compassion fatigue um, and that's really because people are are switching off they don't want to look at these uh, these stories that make them feel bad Um, and yeah people are just swiping past so uh I think those are yeah some of the the kind of main reasons why this uh these type of story this type of storytelling keeps getting perpetuated within uh this sector
1: mm-hmm. thank you for that Sarah I appreciate your your explanation um so now it appeared that uh, the so called poor people of the world are seen as objects uh, that need to be to be used Uh, so this object uh, uh, be used so that money can be made at the end of the day. Of course, there are different dimensions to the story now. There are a lot of, uh, I think there are more than 30,000 Western NGOs in Africa today that are trying to resolve one problem, to resolve the poverty in Africa. (laughs) Somebody will say, well, um, it's a joke, it's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, NGO does not resolve poverty. That is not how poverty is resolved. Um, So this uh, this more than 30,000 Western NGO in Africa need to try to convince the donors somehow that what they are doing is right. Uh, But at the end, somebody needs to (laughs) try to understand. Are this NGO already working for these poor people I want to use that poor very well with a capital P so it can make sense. Are they actually resolving those poverty problems so that at the end of the day, they, the NGO can then be out of job because now their job is done. These poor people can then become rich or they are actually making themselves, the NGO, in this case, be specific Western NGO, making themselves rich at the expense of these poor people in Africa, of course, we can also be in in, uh, in Asia. It's the same, but um, just pay attention to Western NGO and Africans.
0: Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I think uh, I certainly can't speak for all Western NGOs in Africa. There's uh, in terms of communication, there's. Certainly, when NGOs are perpetuating stereotypes or uh, portraying as, as Africa, often you know you hear people say that Africa is a is a country, or uh, that yeah portraying people uh, portraying Africans as poor, I think is already um, a mistake. Is already uh, Going into the wrong, wrong direction. Africa is a continent full of, you know, rich, talented, uh, bright, uh, innovative uh, people and organisations. Think where NGOs can have uh, Western NGOs can have greater impact, and this is also a big discussion within the sector is on shifting the power. So. Um, at Spark, we, we really focus on it. So rather than being a Western NGO, taking Western uh, funding from say, let's say like USAID or the European Union or the governments of, of Europe uh, and then designing a program of what we think works or what we think will be helpful for people in developing countries, uh, it's much more, it's proven much more effective and sustainable to instead co design uh, projects with local organizations. And this is, these might be kind of community organizations or service providers or, but really making it local. So uh, working with people, maybe even from the communities that you're trying to support, because they have the, the contextual knowledge uh, and the know-how to to of, of how to reach certain communities, how to reach the most vulnerable. They know what's needed. Um, and then we can work, we often work at Spark as a as a broker, kind of an a middleman essentially, between Western Western funding, big donors and local organizations and it's a bit of a two-way street so you then you're you're co-designing what what's needed and then you uh you implement it together with a with a local organization and where they lack uh skills or where they lack for example they might uh not have a very strong communications department or they might have uh, not very strong uh, they might not be able to apply for big EU grants themselves maybe they've never done that before you know that's where spark or you know in middle middle organization can support with with uh, training or support them in areas where they are not so strong so that it, it, like you said uh, we can eventually uh, there eventually there should be no need for a Western NGO. You know, it should be taken care of by local organizations uh, or national organizations, whatever you want to call it. That
1: that is that is very interesting because now I'm I'm imagining that maybe this uh, NGO, maybe they were set up in Africa, set up by African uh, people. Uh, maybe they want to assess the same fund. Um more than sure that they will not get this fund, whether it is the money coming from USAID or the European Union, they will not give them the money. But if maybe there is a Western NGO that say, okay, I'm going there to Burundi or to Sierra Leone or to to South Africa to help eradicate HIV, they will give them the money. Why do you think? And of course, what we find out at the end of the day, because... This is not something that just happened one year this will be happening for years for several <laughs> for several years so if we have at least half intelligence we should be able to understand this because all the documents they are also there is that the money that they collect to help people in africa actually end up re- remaining in europe only well, a few percentage of it actually go there where you see sometimes they dig a pond and uh, things like that uh, I'm not saying all Western NGOs are the same. I'm not saying no Western NGO work in Africa. But in the generality of it, the money that is raised remains in the West. They never go to Africa. So the question is this one. Let me put it in a very simple terms. Do you think if, this, if the objective really was to help the people, the poor people, if these people, because they are not sick, they are just poor. I mean, they don't have resources, no? Let's say we teach these people how to organize themselves. They don't need the middle man. The European want to help them, fine. They just send them the money to help themselves. Because the NGO now are settled by the Burundi, are settled by the Sierra Leone. And they are the one asking for this fund. The UTI, they will they will get the fund
0: yeah I, I think you're right that it's uh, it's an incredibly comp complicated process to apply for some of these huge funding uh, opportunities like most uh, most of the organizations winning these grants are well established, very uh, kind of yeah they've been they've been going for multiple years they have departments kind of dedicated to uh with with specialists that are that know how to apply for these kind of grants and and that's you know um i i work at the ngo level and then there's the donor level right and and that's there 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 has to be a shift so their donors have to make it more accessible for um for smaller organizations without these big resources of of experts and writers and uh, and that kind of thing so that they can also access the funds but in the meantime i think that's where that's where ngos or western ngos can come in uh, and play a role in supporting smaller organizations to be able to access funding opportunities like that because that's really where it, we need to put our money where the mouth uh, mouth where the money is what's the expression <laughs> so yeah
1: that, yeah we'll put our money where the where our mouth is <laughs> money where the mouth is mm-hmm.
0: so that yeah that if we really want to localize and give power back into the hands of uh, of developing countries or to communities uh, so that they can have uh, impact yeah, we have to, uh, to, to, that's where the money needs to go directly. Yeah, you're
1: right. Mm. And unfortunately, that money never goes there. What we see, you know, one time I was talking with a, a friend of mine, he's an Italian. He wanted to, uh, he, so loved, he so loved Africa, no? you know, the point is that there are a lot of Europeans who so much love Africa and they want to help because what is happening between Africa and Europe is a complex situation. And, of course, it can be explained also in a very simple terms. That uh, for more than 500 years, somehow we have bought into the idea that Europe is going to help Africa. I don't know how we managed to get the idea, but it is that Europe is helping Africa. So, Africa, you don't need to worry. somebody's coming to help you. These are the European. And for these years, somehow we managed to understand it that europe is there to help africa africa just need to receive this help but it doesn't work we can see that it doesn't work and it's not going to work everyone is going to help his or herself now there are a lot of Europeans who really have this sincere because europeans are also human beings who have this sincerity in their heart to just go there and help but it is more complex than that Sometimes, by helping will even go on and start perpetrating the same uh the, the same trouble that is already created there. Okay, this guy I was talking about now, he said he, he wants to just join an NGO so that he can, he can help. No, he want to because he, he, you cannot understand why a, a people will just be continually suffering like this. Why is it like this? So, he, he started to apply for different NGO. You know, Italy is full of NGO also, you not know, just like in the UK or some other countries um, in the West. What he began to see is that when he go to some of these NGO, he see that a lot of big, big cars are parked. He was beginning to wonder, but why? He, he, he think that these are poor people that are trying to help poor people in Africa. Why are all of them uh, driving these big cars? Of course, he have not done his research well enough to understand that that is that the NGO are big multinationals. They are not actually poor companies. They are not poor society that are just trying to help. So this is where I think it becomes even very complicated for us not to understand. I get, I
0: get what you're saying, and this is, yeah, a very... um. This I think this is the perception and maybe the yeah the perception of Western NGOs in in Africa especially uh, that yeah you you have these kind of private compounds right where people live and it's uh and and it does it happens you know and and even worse things happen in fact you know you see these huge scandals with Oxfam and in in Haiti and uh, a sexual abuse scandals. so it certainly is a huge uh it's a it's a problem absolutely but I don't think that all uh western NGOs can be painted with the same brush I think that there's a huge amount of uh positive impact um I think yeah you're right that especially in um some countries there's a huge amount of aid dependency so people don't uh yeah they feel that you know if they work with an NGO that they'll uh uh there's not yeah there's not enough other opportunities around for them to be able to kind of uh become more independent um but I think in terms of communications there's you're seeing a big shift now with people taking steps to try to avoid this type of communication and this type of storytelling when uh to, to to really be conscious of 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 consent of uh, of of telling nuanced stories about people and communities and uh and also yeah providing platforms for people to tell their own stories i think that's much more of an effective way uh for ngos to be able to uh get their get the point across and and not be able to and not have to show people as as disempowered or uh yeah, or poor, um, because that's, yeah, that's just not the reality in the end.
1: Mm. All right. Now, uh, do you think if they don't paint the image like that, they will still be able to get the fund at the end of the day?
0: Yeah, so, yeah, I think, like I said, um, these days we're so... You're you're seeing compassion fatigue all the time among among audiences. So people are much more reluctant to hear stories or watch stories about uh sad things about poor people about uh yeah things that are going to make them feel bad I think people just want to watch cat videos in my experience but um there are many many ways then for, for let me give you an example then so there's Uh, Thomas Coombs his name is he was the the head of brand at Amnesty International I think he has developed a framework called hope-based storytelling and that um, it provides kind of five narrative shifts Um, so when you're when you're a communicator or a storyteller or whatever you can uh it allows you to reframe stories um in a different light so for example rather than telling stories about fear you tell instead stories about hope or rather than saying as an organization what you are against you instead tell what you're for what are those what are the initiatives that you support um, the same, yeah, the same goes for there's uh, problems instead of talking about problems, talk about solutions and instead of talking about threats, talk about opportunities. and uh, the last one is instead of talking about people as victims, talk about people as, as heroes or as ambassadors or you know um, And this framework for storytelling was adopted by a lot of NGOs. Um, and there's an organization in the Netherlands who I think would say that this is a bit of a bad thing there's uh the, the from the expertise centre of humanitarian communication and they say that actually n g o s then went um in the opposite direction, so it was very negative campaigning uh to very deliberate positive positivism so like only showing uh, smiling faces and telling the happy stories and, I think that's um also not good because you're you know no one is one-dimensional or two-dimensional like we're we're human beings we all have different sides of life or different stages of life even and to tell only one part of a story is is to not do the story a certain a good service so I think what we need to do is is be much more nuanced in storytelling um this is where the solution is really, and having a balanced stories. Uh, there's a few. There's a few examples where, I mean, telling nuanced stories in a in a digital age is very difficult, isn't it? Because you're trying to capture people's attention uh, in in seconds now. Like people are only reading the headlines. Uh, and if that grabs their attention, then they might read more. Um, and the same for, you know, filmmaking. You you have only a few seconds before somebody scrolls past again. Um, but there are really innovative ways uh, of storytelling. For example, if you go to Instagram uh, and you type in equiano.stories, it's um, an Instagram account. Um, these are, these are, uh, highly produced, uh, vertical film, uh, s- stories telling the story of a, a young boy during the transatlantic slave trade. Um, beautifully shot with amazing actors, but all told, uh, through Instagram stories. So you click through and you see the, um, you see the the journey of this of this young boy on a on a slave ship. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, Ava, Ava dot stories. it's the a, a similar thing It's the story of a young uh, girl during the Holocaust in, in Europe. But so what I'm trying to say is that there are it I think we think of it as a, as a barrier that you know you it's very difficult to tell a nuanced, balanced story when you have to be very fast but there are many many different creative ways that you can um that you can try to do this
1: thank you so much for that i i appreciate that now you see this take on to another important part of it uh, part of the narration which is the the humanization of the 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 the, the object or the subject of our story mm. and i think uh, this is where um, most uh, ngo um or Western commentators on Africa actually um, should pay more attention in that stories are very powerful. It can be used to, to malign a people. It can also be used to, to help a people. And at the end of the day, it's not just it's not just the money. It's not only the money, but we can actually empower a people by the kind of story we tell. Absolutely. So I want you to speak to me more about that what do you think ngos western ngos in africa should do in terms of the story they tell about their african uh, neighbor if you want to call it because i usually say and i think and i think i believe it is true that europe is a neighbor to africa it's not from another continent sorry it's not from another planet we are just a Uh, two people separated by a stretch of water. You cannot tell me that in this side of the water are human beings in the other side are animals. We are all human beings. We should humanize ourselves in our story. No matter what might be the ulterior motive, what we might need to gain as a company or um, whatever it, it is, let's first of all humanize ourselves. Help me with that.
0: Yes, I uh, I completely agree with you. I think um, NGOs can do a number of things. I think at Spark, we try to see ourselves as providing a platform rather than telling people's stories for them. So I much prefer to you know, for example, if we get invited to high profile uh, conferences or global events or forums, um, often, you know, then people want to hear from the CEO of Spark, but we often try to push instead uh, for, for participants of our programs or for our local staff to go instead of him so that, he, uh, that you know, the real voices of, uh, can tell the impact. Same same goes for media opportunities. It's uh it's always much better to have somebody else tell how great you are than rather than you uh tell other people how great you are yourself. Um I think that's uh we're always pushing that like like you know the young people that we work with that they go into the limelight, they tell about their experiences uh with Spark rather than uh the other way around. Um, I think the other thing is the importance of language um, and this comes up a lot uh, when thinking about this subject but the the power of language and, and thinking uh, and, and the fact that words really matter and I think um, firstly you know the languages that we communicate in there is already this linguistic imperialism that Uh, most western NGOs are only communicating in English or in French or Spanish, or I think Portuguese also is pretty big. Um, and that ignores you know huge numbers of people. Um, so you know, taking steps to provide content or stories or social media content in local languages, um, and I guess. Then, if you go even deeper, I mean, we're talking in English now. So, uh, to give some examples in English, like if you dive into some of the words that are really common in NGOs, uh, you find that they are, that they are like uh, colonial, militarized, uh, capitalist, also. Yeah, they're really othering. Um, so, for example, like we often hear the term boots on the ground this is said all the time uh, in the uh, I'm going to the field or uh, working like with target populations or the fact that you're capacity building uh, and the word this is the, the biggest offender I think anyone working in an NGO will relate to this the word beneficiaries um, and if I take this example so the, yeah the term beneficiaries I think sounds in English like you know innocent enough um, but if you dive into you know what it, it's used the word is used to describe the people that are supported by NGOs programs. Um but it it it's the the linguistic implication of it, it describes, yeah, it implies that people have no agency of their own, uh, that they are you know are reliant on aid, that they are disempowered and uh, it also suggests that the NGO themselves are like profi- that they are providing a benefit to the person, which is, of course, not always true. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I think, another step that NGOs can take to, you know, really re- readdress this balance in storytelling. And I think the, the the last thing or the most important thing, I should say, is is working with People, working with local people, I think for a long, long time, NGOs or charities, or whatever, have have uh, flown in uh, crews from 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 the West or from Europe or from the US or something. You know, if they want to collect content, they they fly in a filmmaker, they fly in maybe a a, a, a celebrity to you know be the tv presenter and talk about uh, young kids in africa or something um and then you never it's about the process and also the product so in the process you have to work with local organizations and i think uh i started at spark and um we we were doing just that we were flying in teams of filmmakers or photographers that were from the UK or from the Netherlands and uh that nuance then in in when somebody is telling their story to you know someone that they don't know that someone that speaks a different language to them they're from a different community uh you just don't get the rich story and you don't Get all of the nuances that uh, that come. So, for example, I had one one example when I was it was uh, the beginning of my career making a film, and I was working with a lot of different contributors from different countries, and uh, one of one of them was a young Muslim girl who wore the headscarf, um, and so did the did the filming with her uh always good you know she was consenting she was willing to be part of this film and uh always good so shot shot some footage with her took it back to Amsterdam and started working on the on the footage with a you know a Dutch editor and then uh we were kind of yeah going for ages debating about music and we had the perfect shots and we thought everything was good and we were it was to, It was a campaign that was due to start um, on the anniversary of uh, the organization. And it just so happened that this one of, this girl, um, she messaged me out of the blue and, and kind of asked to, to see the film as it was. Um, and you know, I was super proud of it, so I, I sent her the link that, you know the day before that it was supposed to be launched um thinking that she would also be very happy with it and then of course she came back and she said like Sarah this is really bad i'm so sorry but you know there's a there's an image there's a shot in the video that i really don't like and there was it was a it was a moment where uh the wind had caught her skirt and had blown uh so that you could see part of her uh, leg and she felt very uncomfortable about this um and this incident really brought it home for me that I think three things that like basically consent is fluid so she might have consented to her story being told at the time and you know I explained to her how this footage would be used and where it would go and that she could see it and um and those things and she consented at the time uh up until the moment that she didn't anymore and that was a really important thing for me to realize was that yeah it's it's uh really important to make sure that consent is understood um and also really important to respect it when um when someone changes their mind you know circum their circumstances might change and they want you to remove a piece of content or to not use their story anymore and that's yeah really important to respect that um, in this case, we we changed the the footage uh, so that yeah her leg wasn't visible and it was she was fine with that in the end so it was okay. But the second thing it taught me was that you know this this really wouldn't have happened if I'd have worked with a filmmaker who was from you know was also Muslim or was from the same community because he would have already he or she would have already spotted that this was going to be an issue. Um, And the third thing I realised was that, yeah, it's so important to involve people in the telling of their own stories. Like I had not uh, shared any of the the drafts with her. She hadn't seen any of the footage. Only until it was only by chance that she she contacted me on like on the day before it was supposed to go out. So it was OK. But, you know, it really I really felt bad about that, that we that I had just neglected her as a contributor to. And, you know, she was so generous in in sharing her story. Um, and that's something that I always take with me now and always, I think, yeah, involving people in the telling of their own stories is uh, is the only way that we can
1: tell kind of ethical and inclusive stories. Thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate your sincerity, Sarah. Um, you see, when you were explaining uh, before, at a point you were saying that... Um, mm, that the NGO they they appear to use the the terms and terminology of the colonial uh, time and sometimes as if they were looking at a land that need to be conquered, but really that is the way it is. I think the, the most Western NGO. I'm not trying to say all. I mean most are actually um the new colonialists of Africa, and of course they are happy. Uh, the bigger power to occupy the role because they have a, a lot of role to play in the education. They have a lot of role to play in the concept of the white savior. And we are going to help you. We are going to help you. Don't worry. Like I was saying before, no, that I am helping you. You know, I'm helping you. You know, it's, it's false. You know, in that, if we really want to find a solution, let's sit down together. Let's you need to ask me, what do I want? Maybe maybe I don't need to fall into your understanding of development. You're going to ask me, what do I understand by development? What do I really need? Because I think the concept of development that is designed, I'm not saying that anybody needs to go without food or need to go without electricity or things like that. If I if we even leave the people alone by now they would have figured it out that they need electricity they would be able to get electricity for themselves instead of just uh, be taken along to hey come on come on fee here this is your position this is what is for you this is for you just follow just follow the people don't understand where you are taking them they are not following we can see that they are not following because the model is not based on them it is there everything is foreign to them but they don't they because I think think poverty is a weapon in that when you are too poor, you don't have the means to be able to live. The person who is giving you the, the means to live, they take everything for you. Therefore, even though you don't like it, you are not able to resist it. You are not able to say no because you don't have an alternative. And this is very dangerous and it is highly evident in Africa. And this is why I say again that a lot of Western NGOs have a lot of work. They, they have work to do because the ordinary work that was supposed to be done is not done. So uh, you're not coming to say, I bring solution for you. It makes more sense. If you were a brigade NGO from America to Italy, you will get less. It, it will not make more sense because the people have the basic to be able to live. So this is what I think that might mean that... Uh, this, are term of in the feed, really they are in the feed they are working they are NGO, they are non-governmental organization, yes, but in between the line, they are actually governmental organization, because the money is coming from the government in most of the cases, the money is coming from the European Union, the European Union is a government USA, the money is coming from the United States from the government of the United States okay, so that you can also get the donors that are not part of the government So saying that you are going to deal with people in Africa and you are a non-governmental organization, mm, not all the cases you are actually a non-governmental organization. You are a governmental organization. So that is why they use those terms that they are going to defeat. They are going to... Because it is the same terminology, it is the same thing, it is the same routine that people have been used to during colonialism. So I just wanted to clarify that, that... that is actually the role that most Western NGO actually occupy in Africa. All right, now, having said that, I wanted to say something to me about um, story because I like story. I like I like it a lot. Um, how much can you be uh, truthful in the story that you tell? Because before I was talking of humanizing the story that the NGO. Tell or should tell so that the people at the receiving end are not just seen as object, but they can also be seen as human beings, even though they might need help. Now, how much can we be say the real story, but also say in a way that it can also convert? In a way that it can also help, it can also help the person who is listening to us to uh, bring it to our side and then act upon our offer, but without degrading the people who the story is about? Mm. I know it's a complicated one, but that is the question.
0: No, I think it's a really important question. Um, I think, yeah, there's a great TED Talk uh, called The Danger of a Single Story uh, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adishi. Uh And it's all about um, the fact that, you know, stereotypes are not always untrue but um they are always only one part of a story and so that yeah that's what I mean when I say that we need nuanced and balanced stories diverse stories um and you see sometimes NGOs telling uh lots of different stories about one person Uh, or one community to kind of create a more three-dimensional picture of a person or a community because yeah there's just no there's no one uh, thing in a person's life and I think from from various research there's there's great research by a woman called Jess Crombie uh, with Save the Children called People in the Pictures and it's a it's a research over I think four countries and interviewing people uh that had had their picture taken um or or their story used and uh and they often you know when they looked back at those stories felt you know it was a sad time in their life or it was a yeah not even sad but a particular time in their life but you know, life moves on, and people do not stay refugees forever, or people do not not stay poor forever. Just like people don't stay in the same job forever, you know. So, it's um it's about telling nuanced uh, and balanced stories. And yeah, last year Spark was nominated for um, by the for the High Flyer Award by the Expertise Center for Humanitarian Communication for a film. Uh, about a young entrepreneur in Burundi, uh, and it was entirely shot by uh, a Burundian creative agency. And it's uh, it's um it's a film about a young entrepreneur in Burundi, uh, and it was uh, produced entirely by a Burundian uh, creative agency called Akeza and um also uses the the local language, the Kurundi language, and so. In that sense, it's a much more uh, true story. It's not, you know, he's not speaking in English. It's not a film about him. It's a film, you know, with him. It's developed uh, with him, uh, and it's also a, a very balanced portrayal of, um, you know, his his work life. His you hear from his employees. His how he started this uh, this business. So. I think we need more stories like that, that are like not only telling one part of a person's life, but are actually try, making attempts to tell uh, a balanced
1: story. Thank you so much for that. that, that that's important. I, I remember when we first talked um, uh, before in, during our pre-interview, you did mention of uh, ethical story. I think I, I like that term a lot. Do you want to expand on that a bit?
0: Yeah, I think it combines uh, all of the things we've been talking about. Really, like um, ensuring consent is given, proper consent. Where you know, a, a lot of times when NGOs take uh, from people, they they have them sign a consent form, and then that's it. Uh, and then they have the rights to use their their story in whatever way. Uh, and that's not enough that's not good enough and um, people you know you need to really take time to explain to people the many ways in which their stories can be used for example you know you might uh, take photos of someone and then these photos might end up on social media they might end up on a website they might end up in uh, brochures or flyers you know so you need to make sure that people know what they are consenting to, um, and it's yeah, it's also about yeah, trying to provide a platform uh, for people to tell their own stories. You know, there doesn't always need to be uh, an agenda to it or an angle to it, um, and and I think yeah, part of part of ethical storytelling is is yeah, taking these steps to work with with local people, to think about language, to think about nuance. Um, and then yeah, slowly, slowly it's baby steps, but slowly, slowly we come to, a um, a slightly more ethical, inclusive, uh, and nuanced, uh, storytelling
1: world. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much for that. Now, what do you really like about storytelling? Like, um, uh, in your work, let, let look at your work for example, uh, what interests you about storytelling?
0: Um, what interests me about storytelling? I love that, uh, I love the emotion of it, I think. Uh, and stories are so powerful and it's so innate in our kind of biology so I think whenever I give a training or something like that I always start with um, these images of of cave paintings you know and these things are like 64 or 40 to 45 thousand years uh, old Um, and humans have just been telling stories for such a long time and it's so important to us and uh these these handprints on on cave walls and and paintings of animals uh, on cave walls I think uh, yeah it's such an emotional evocative um thing and it's uh, it's just clearly so part of our biology and it has such a powerful impact. Um, it can have such a powerful impact if you if you do it in the right way. Um, and I think that's why I think, of my job is so special and such a privilege to be able to uh, work with people that are ready to tell their stories and they might be difficult stories. They might be happy stories, but uh, it's a, it's our responsibility as, as an NGO to be able to do that in the most ethical way possible.
1: Now, see maybe some people want to connect with you. Uh, What is the best way to, to be able to reach you or maybe work with you or learn more about you?
0: yeah thanks um i have a website i think that's probably the best way it's uh, sarah l um, and yeah my you can contact me there or uh, also on linkedin i'm pretty active on linkedin so yeah i would be happy to to hear from anyone yeah that listens to this
1: all right thank you for that sarah now what would be your final thoughts to conclude the conversation that we have had today
0: yeah, the, the the stories have the power to make or break communities. I think uh we are surrounded by stories that us that are trying to uh to break us, to polarize us. Uh whether that's, you know, the the west versus Africa or uh NGOs versus governments or uh, you know that we're in a in a world now that is, is very divisive and i think the power of a hopeful story is is unmatched and uh, those are the kind of stories that i really try to create
1: thank you so much for that i really do appreciate the conversation i really do thank you thank so you. much
0: thank you is it,
1: is it is there anything that you would like to to say to conclude that i didn't ask you
0: no, that's I that's great. I thought it was a really interesting conversation.
1: Alright, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review Obehe Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remember Obehe Air Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.